You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. And when you think about what is required in order to reduce carbon emissions at a very, very big level, the first thing you want to do is not emit the carbon that you don't need to. The next thing you want to do is electrify the stuff that needs an energy input because electricity can be fully renewable or fully decarbonized, whereas heat is much more complicated at the moment. And then the third thing you want to do is replace with something else, whether that's a, a hydrogen technology or a carbon capture or something else down the road. And we do the first two here. We increase the efficiency by 90% and we fully electrify the 10% that we don't eliminate. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Today's episode continues our series on hard-to-abate sectors, where decarbonization depends on scalable, cost-competitive technologies. Our prior episodes on hard-to-abate sectors have addressed trucking, concrete, green hydrogen, and aviation. Today, we're focusing on the industrial sector. I'm talking with Shreya Davi, CEO of Via Separations, a company focused on reducing the energy needed to separate or isolate substances in industrial processes. Industrial separation is a critical step in manufacturing a wide array of products, including pharmaceuticals, food and beverages, semiconductors, and chemicals. I'll ask Shreya to discuss how her company's technologies are reducing the carbon footprint of these industrial processes and to discuss her experience co-founding this startup company. Here's my interview with Shreya Davi of Via Separations. Shreya, thank you so much for joining us here on Climate Rising. Thank you for having me. So what's your role at Via Separations and what was your journey to get there? I am the CEO and co-founder at Via Separations, which we founded out of our research at MIT in the Department of Material Science with my co-founder, Brent Keller, who is our CTO, and our former professor, Jeff Grossman. Via Separations is focused on decarbonizing the industrial sector by making industrial manufacturing more energy efficient and electrifying it. And we do that by replacing heat-based processes like evaporators and distillation columns with membrane filtration, which is 90% lower energy, fully electrifiable, and provides operational flexibility to the customer. Got it. So in a lay version of that, if you're a camper or living someplace where the water is not safe to drink, the idea is instead of boiling the water, let's use a filter to to enable it to be clean enough to drink. That's exactly right. And you're based here in the Boston area? We're based here in the Boston area. We love being close to the academic institutions. Our lives and our families are are here. And we've had a wonderful, uh, wonderful experience in the climate tech, hard tech ecosystem uh, that really started and, and grew from the engine. So you were a PhD student in material science at MIT. What 
do material science PhD students study? Oh, well, all sorts of things. Um, you can be a computational material scientist and model how you think the molecules and how thermodynamics says the molecules will behave. You can be an experimental scientist and bring to life some of those things that happened in the models. You can be developing new materials. You can be putting materials together. You can be building batteries. You can be building solar cells. What I did was took a really phenomenal piece of of modeling work and tried to bring it to fruition in reality in the lab, um, show that the material has the properties, can do the things that we predicted it could do using computational molecular dynamics. So I learned a lot about what goes on in the real world and uh, the challenges to fabrication, to characterization, to the properties that gravity employs onto, onto molecules. I learned a lot about the fundamental science. And I also had the opportunity to look at the economic impact and the climate impact of the technology we were working on as part of my PhD, which is how we thought at the beginning that there wasn't commercial applicability. We had modeled the application we envisioned, which was water filtration at the time. And when we looked at the numbers and how it impact the costs of water, our hypothesis that improving this material would make cheaper, better, faster access to clean water was not true. And so in true scientist format, we had a hypothesis, we disproved it, and we said, thank you, we'll move on to the next problem. And it turns out that it is true. It's just not true in the water industry. It's more true in the chemicals and raw materials industry that we could have a very big climate and cost impact for the manufacturers of those raw materials. First of all, just a definitional issue here. You talked about you learned a lot about characterization. Yep. For the non-expert, what does that mean? Oh, of course. They're basically different types of measurement tools to understand what's going on in the physical world, but at the atomic scale. Got it. So you had a set of tests going on on a material that you thought might be useful for producing clean drinking water. That's right. Was that coming from salt water or from wastewater? No, that's coming from salt water. So seawater desalination had been our focus. And so it turned out it wasn't as effective in doing that as you'd hoped. And so you thought, well, where else might filtration be important? That's exactly right. Okay. Can you talk about where is filtration used in industry? And then how does your technology do better from a climate and cost perspective than the prevailing technologies? Absolutely. So I'll actually pop one more level out and say separation. So separating different chemical compounds from one another is incredibly important. It accounts for about 15% of global energy consumption. It is about 75% of the cost of producing a raw material or a chemical. And it's hugely energy intensive because we do it largely the same way we have since the Industrial Revolution. If you're trained as a chemical engineer, you will learn how a distillation column works before you learn how fluid flows through a pipe. It is that fundamental to our, our unit operations, to our manufacturing sector, and to the designing um, and building that chemical engineers do. The analogy I use here is a pot of pasta. We boil off all the water to get to pasta at the bottom of a pot instead of pouring it through a strainer. 
in your sink, which at the industrial scale is 90% less energy, it's fully electrifiable, and it provides operational flexibility to the customer. So filtration can displace these heat-based processes. Pasta strainers can displace the pasta pot in this analogy and have a huge impact on the cost drivers, on the energy consumption, and on the emissions, which are a little bit decoupled, by using filtration instead. So filtration is already used in the water sector. It's been uh, doing so in about two, three decades and has been a really great use case for transformation from the pasta pot to the pasta strainer. But for chemicals and for the production of raw materials like paper, we still use the pasta pot. So what we're doing at Via Separations is taking the pasta pots that exist in existing manufacturing sectors and augmenting them with pasta strainers to reduce the energy consumption, to electrify the process, and to provide the customer the ability to produce more product. So instead of boiling off the material that you don't need in order to leave the material you do want, you're pouring it through filtration. That's exactly right. And using electric pumps to do so. That's exactly. why there's electricity involved yes. in this process. Yep. And you're talking about augmenting as opposed to substituting. So does that mean you're doing a lot of the pre-work first and then allowing the boiling off to happen much later in the process so there's less to boil off? Yep, that, that's exactly right. And we do that for a couple different reasons. So the first is um, if there is a pasta pot that exists or an evaporator that exists on a manufacturing facility and it still has a useful life left in it, then we want to be able to use it, maybe extend the useful life because we're not running it as, as hard, but we want to still be able to use it. And so uh, we and our customers believe the best bang for the buck is to do that pre-work, to take, say, 50% of the pasta water out out, and, and allow the boiling to, to happen as well. It also, for a new technology to enter the manufacturing sector, provides some amount of redundancy. Um, the number one and number two things that matter to our customers are safety and reliability. And redundancy enables that reliability and uh, the existing process being there improves the safety. And so we want to be very conscious that that's, if that's our customer's number one goals, it's also in our number one goals. What's the customer value? This is cheaper and or environmentally less intensive? So it's three things. It is a reduction in energy or chemical or other operating costs, increase of top line. So maybe you are running more stably and have less downtime or you are making more product because now you have this additional capacity that's augmenting the evaporators. And then the third thing is we're doing all of that value creation. We're doing all of that positive ROI stuff for the customer while also reducing their carbon emissions. And when you think about uh, what is required in order to reduce carbon emissions at a very, very big level, uh, the first thing you want to do is, is not emit the carbon that you don't need to. The next thing you want to do is electrify the stuff that needs an energy input because electricity can be fully um, renewable or fully decarbonized, whereas heat is much more complicated at the moment. 
And then the third thing you want to do is replace with something else, whether that's a, a hydrogen technology or a carbon capture or something else down the road. And we do the first two here. We increase the efficiency by 90% and we fully electrify the 10% that we don't eliminate. Take us through a couple of the actual use cases. So, you know, clearly we're not using this to produce pasta. It sounds like a whole range of industrial processes require this type of separation that can be substituted or augmented using your technology. What's the scope of it? And then how did you decide where to focus your efforts as a startup company? So the blessing and the curse is that it is such a broad huge market for us to tap into. And the curse piece of it is that it is a little bit different for each different market. So in some cases, maybe we're fully replacing the existing pasta pod. In some cases, we're augmenting. In some cases, we're doing uh, multiple steps together as one. In some cases, we're replacing one step. And, and we have the opportunity to be able to plug into a huge diversity of different processes. Like you said, they exist in chemicals, in petrochemicals refining, in semiconductors, in food and beverage, in pharmaceuticals, and in pulp and paper, which is actually where we are launching the technology. We're launching the technology actually as we speak. We are commissioning the first plant with a um, pulp and paper company in um, Grand Prairie, Alberta, which is north of Calgary, just for you to get your bearings. We're focusing on the pulp and paper industry because the industry is extremely excited about the operational flexibility and the decarbonization and the energy savings associated with this technology. They are innovative. They have been thinking about filters instead of their evaporators for two decades. They are very cognizant of how their facilities are built and operate and can understand very explicitly the benefits that this can provide. And because it's a fairly large market for us, globally, there's about 1 billion gallons of this fluid processed every single day. And so we have the opportunity to achieve the the economies of scale, to be in a lot of different global markets, and also use this as a launch pad into the chemicals and food and beverage sectors, which are sort of our roadmap going forward. And is Canada, this location, uh, simply an opportunistic play in the sense that that was the company that was interested? Or is there something about the regulatory environment that makes Canada particularly attractive, given you're based here in Boston? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Our uh, first customer, and, and this is public, is with International Paper. And they have a, a large fraction of the North American market. And the facility that we're working with is an incredibly innovative and well-run facility. And that's really important to us. You know, we're launching a first-of-a-kind demonstration system uh, that we know will work, but it will take some tweaks to get there, and it will take some patience and understanding of what's going on on both sides of the fence in order to really make this work extremely reliably. And we've found that in the human beings, in the culture of the parent company, and in the um, the economic opportunity for this particular facility. A very small piece of that is regulatory environment because there is a tax on carbon in Canada, in most of the provinces in Canada, and that is projected to increase. So there is a slight incentive for Canadian companies to move more quickly as compared to American companies. But I'll be totally frank and say that our, our pipeline is 
probably 50-50 U.S. and Canada at this moment. So we're not uh, only focusing on Canada. We don't need that regulatory environment for it to be a cost driver for the customer to adopt. And it does not need to be a carbon initiative for it to be valuable to the customer. So how are you going to market with these? So you, it sounds like you, you at least up front, are looking for companies that are willing to work with you to sort of co-produce the optimization of your product and its deployment, which makes complete sense. So you have willing and patient engineers on the other side of the table who are co-producing with you. I'm trying to understand where the growth growth potential. So if this is offering them a solution that is cheaper than their prevailing technology, even without a carbon tax, is I think what you're saying, and it has the benefit of carbon reduction, which is helpful for a lot of companies who have made net zero pledges and other um, science-based target initiative reductions. So this sounds like quite uh, a huge opportunity. Is that? Am I hearing that right? We think so. Yeah. So how are you going to market? Are you developing the technology with a technology partner and then co-installing it and maintaining it? Or are you licensing your technology? How, how are you actually getting it into these plants? That's a great question. So for these early projects, at a minimum, we are installing the technology at the customer site uh, and in collaboration, of course, with that customer. But the opportunity here is for us who knows the technology the very best to be able to operate it as optimized as possible instead of having to rely on a third party or a customer to operate it at its peak performance. And so we we believe that we can provide the best performance by operating it ourselves in the near term. We also think a lot about how what's best for our customer, and we're trying to make their operations more efficient and economic and retain the jobs in their region and to um, provide uh, good-paying jobs to the, to the economy as well. So when we're working with the customer, we have learned that the customer is most excited about a sort of annual service fee as opposed to a capital sale. And that's not every single customer. Some folks in our pipeline are saying, no, I actually think I'm interested in a capital sale. Uh, but for the folks who who say, hey, this decision would be easier, we can make this decision more quickly, this would be great to be put on our operating budget instead of our capital budget, we're happy to work with them and secure the, the financing of the project kind of on our end. Um, we also have to pay that capital back and and that, you know, feeds into the pricing on, on both sides. But it gives us the opportunity to move more quickly. It gives us the opportunity for the customer to make those decisions under just a slightly different set of constraints. And so is this primarily, are you thinking about this as a retrofit technology? Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we very uh, firmly believe that all the industrial manufacturing domestically and globally is doing a very good job of it, and we don't need to tear it down and start from scratch, that we can make the facilities more cost and energy efficient together uh, by by adding some equipment, some infrastructure to the existing facility. So this is always done within the boundary walls of the existing plant um, in different you know formats or footprints, depending on what space is available. 
And it's always done kind of within the scope of what the customer is comfortable for us to do on site. And so you had mentioned some pretty large statistics about separation being a real driver of energy use and carbon footprint in the industrial sector. So in your early deployments, when you're installing this equipment at pulp and paper operations, for example, how, by how much does it reduce the entire plant's carbon footprint? I don't know if I have exactly the answer to that question, but I can say that we are um, we are able to offset about 50% of the energy required for the black liquor concentration process, which is about a third to 40% of the energy on the entire facility. So we're talking 10 to 15 to 20%, depending on exactly the, the use case for the customer of the overall mill. Not every project is going to hit that number because we are also making economic decisions. So it's not just what we can do or what we should do, but also what makes sense in the current uh, demand environment, what makes sense in the current regulatory environment, what makes sense on the timeline and schedule and risk that the customer is willing to take. Um, but that that is the opportunity for the pulp and paper facilities. There are um, going to be different numbers for every different process that we employ. We'll be able to fully replace a distillation column in some processes. We'll be able to augment distillation columns in other processes. And each of those sort of has its own story, which is, again, coming back to that that blessing and a curse, it's a really great opportunity because it is so diverse. It is challenging and it is not straightforward and there is no one size fits all. But to us, that's a market inefficiency and we can fill that gap. It's interesting that you're pursuing this in, or you're planning to pursue this half in the U.S., given we don't have the carbon tax that, for example, Europe faces in terms of their uh, emissions trading system, which would only improve the ROI from the customer's perspective. Can you talk a little bit about that? This has been very important to us from from the get-go. Since we started the company, you know, Bill Gates has released his book with the, the phrase green premium, right? You pay more for the lower impact product, whatever that may be. And uh, I think that's absolutely uh, important for for many technologies in many areas. Um, you know, you can you can imagine uh, concrete, for example, uh, may or may not have a green premium, but if it does, it's a very small fraction of the overall cost of our project. However, when we are talking to our industrial sector customers, their um, ROI on their investment is they're still the number one thing. And yes, they have goals and pledges, but the best case scenario is that we can do both of those. And so we want to be really aligned. We don't want to have to rely on any regulation, any tax credits, any incentives to be economic to the customer. And that was very much by design of, of, the, of the company, of the project, of the, of the technology, of the customer relationships that we have. So whereas um, you may see carbon capture cost hundreds of dollars per ton of CO2, we are creating $100 or more of value for the customer per ton of CO2. And we, I mean, that gets me really excited. That gets a lot of our team up out of bed when times are hard and we're figuring things out. And I think it is why this business will scale rapidly. Yeah, that's interesting. It seems to me once you do get around to expanding to markets 
with carbon taxes of effectively $100, essentially then you're doubling the returns to clients, which then presumably you'll take a bigger share of that because you can price it more, which is more value for you as well. That's exactly exactly the goal. Um, we've opted to start here in North America because we're already doing a lot of new things and uh, adding another variable of complexity was not something that we were willing to sign up for. But a lot of companies have facilities north and south of the border. And so even though, for example, voltage standards are slightly different in Canada, those are relatively trivial things to worry about uh, as it relates to the global operations of a company. And we've found plenty of business in North America, so we haven't had to look past, at least for the near term. So let's talk a little bit about funding. So I know that as a startup, you initially had some funding from the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, Subsequently, you've been raising money from venture capitalists. So can you talk about sort of what your theory of funding has been and and, uh, why this hybrid approach of public and private money? I think that the opportunity to make every dollar go further is my fiduciary responsibility. So maybe that's by stretching a dollar and being, you know, cost conscious on a project, but also that's by leveraging DOE dollars or the National Science Foundation for things that they're really good at, which is technology development, technology validation, meeting cost targets, and uh, venture capital dollars for the things that they're really good at, which is sales and marketing, which is, um, you know, protecting the intellectual property. It's the building the business. the GNA components. And so we have a pretty clean you know, split between what is uh, allowed to be allocated. Uh, of course we do. I mean, that's the, the law. But we also internally feel very strongly about what, what can and cannot be allocated to kind of each pool of capital because what we're doing is filling the funding gaps in each. So in the venture capital world, it is very expensive for us to do development on the venture capital dollar because we're, we're selling comp- parts of the company. But the reality is that something coming out of a university research lab is not ready for commercialization yet. And so there's a gap there. And venture capitalists aren't the technologists, the deep experts in what's going to work, what's going to uh, scale up, how is that going to happen, whereas the the National Science Foundation and the Department of Energy bring in reviewers who have experience in that in that area. And so when you submit an application and the reviewers see it, they're asking those sorts of questions. And so every time, even when we don't win it, and we don't win many of them, we submit a, a grant application, we learn something from it, we get great feedback, or we've had to run to ground a question that we hadn't internally, and the process of just writing the application has made us learn something or set some strategic vision. And so I think the the value is, for both sides, far, far, far beyond the dollar. But dollars are a means to an end, and we do need to be able to pay our people and to rent our space and to build our projects. And uh, the right type of capital going to each of those things is is important to our strategy. Yeah. So the DOE or NSF grants, they do call for proposals and they say, here's what we're looking for. So I can understand how you might select which to apply to those that match reasonably closely to what your needs are as well. Yeah. How does that work in the venture space? There's like a million venture capitalists out there. How do you figure out who to approach 
And if you have more offers than you need, who to select as a partner? Well, I'll start by saying is when we first started raising money in 2017, there weren't a million options out there. We were in this pretty unfriendly space of material science, climate tech, and hardware at a time when climate tech 1.0 was still fresh in everybody's memory and software was scaling. And it was very easy for me to tell who to talk to because I would just look at their existing portfolio, see only software companies, and say, this doesn't make sense for us. And and not to say I didn't have some conversations. I learn a ton every time I'm fundraising, every time I have a fundraising conversation. So I did speak to some folks, and, and we're talking just different numbers. Let us know when you have 100 users. Well, we, if we have 100 users, we're making well over $100 million a year, right? And so two, three, four, five hundred million million, $500 a year. And so we're not – uh, we're not the right fit for for that investor. And so I, lear- I learned that pretty quickly. Uh, the good news is that landscape has changed dramatically over the last seven years, that there are a number of people who are excited about hardware, hard tech. Um, again, I think tough tech is, is a great phrase. Uh, there are a lot of people and tons and tons of smart people investing in climate uh, at every stage of the, of the growth tra- trajectory for a company. And when we're talking to folks now, we're looking at, okay, is this the right amount of technology and market risk that you're willing to take? So some firms want to come in really early, right, make lots of bets and know that a lot won't turn out, but also know there'll be some really big winners. And some folks want to come in later when the technology has been completely proven and there's no questions about it working and then there's everybody in between. And so looking for that right fit, that right appetite for development or engineering or sales or marketing risk is is the right fit because that right fit really matters because you're working with these people, you're working with your board, you're working with your investors to build the larger story. Uh, and if you're misaligned, then you are spending your time trying to you know fit a, a round peg in a square hole because it's it's not it's not a we're building this together. It's a we're trying to prove to each other that that we we have something here, and 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 that's just not company growth. Right. So I think a lot of folks who aren't familiar with the startup process and with venture capitalists imagine that VC investors are there primarily to provide money, and then check up periodically to see whether you're meeting the benchmarks you had claimed you'd meet when you made the initial proposal. But in reality, lots of them actually provide a variety of technical support and expertise. Absolutely. So can you tell a little bit about how have they helped you beyond the funding? Oh, gosh, I have so many examples. I have so many um, very tactical examples helping us um, develop our corporate financial model or helping us negotiate equipment loan deal. These are these are things that just happened in the last like three months for me that that I've worked with my board and my investors on. But what I'll say more broadly is that uh, venture capitalists, growth equity investors, whomever you're working with, 
have the benefit and the exposure to hundreds of companies. Some they'll invest in, some they won't. Some they've already invested in and exited. Some have invested and not succeeded. But they've got this incredible data set of what works and what doesn't work. And that pattern recognition is probably why they invested in us. And that pattern recognition is this wealth of knowledge that we should be tapping as as far as what's working and what's not working and and where have you seen companies falter and what are we expecting around the corner. So as CEO, it is my job to set the strategy and set the vision and, and also raise capital and build a business and all those sorts of things. But setting that strategy and vision is not done in a, uh, you know, in a vacuum. It's done with a lot of input. It's done with people who've seen the trajectory of companies like ours before and who've worked with customers like ours before, who've built projects like ours before. And that is incredibly valuable because we we aren't on an island, nor should we want to be. That's super interesting on the financing and the expertise that you're obtaining from the market. You'd mentioned earlier about some of your clients don't want to purchase the capital, but rather want to pay you an operating fee, which requires, therefore, you to go and get that financing. Where are you getting that financing from? For the current project, uh, the majority of that is equity capital um, with a little bit of creative financing thrown in there. But down the road, as we come down the technology risk curve in that we are proving that we can do what we say we can do at the commercial scale, we are operating for three, six, nine, 12 months reliably, then we will open up different pools of capital. And this is not my um, area of expertise. It's something I've learned a lot about. Uh, but with the the contracts that we are working on with our customers, the goal is to unlock project finance capital and have project companies that own each project and allow project investors into the capital stack. And so that's that's really important to us. Um, it's really important to us um, and our customers that we have repeatable agreements so that if we you know, build one one project with one facility, we don't need to start over for the next project or the next project, that we have sort of a master services agreement. Um, and that's that's one of the, the kind of corporate level strategies that we're working in, on with a couple of our customers. Let's look a little bit toward the future. You'd mentioned earlier that you're expecting the next set of projects to be split across Canada and the U.S. and to, to go above and beyond the pulp and paper sector. So can you talk a little bit about how you decided which sectors to go into and how different or similar they will be to the pulp and paper experience you're acquiring right now? Yeah, we have a couple key criteria when we're thinking about where do we go next. Um, the first is uh, thinking about our fiduciary responsibility. Where are we able to scale and grow the business? The second is where are we going to have a carbon impact? Um, and those, because of our business model, because of the value we generate per ton of carbon, are very well aligned. And so that actually does not end up being uh, attention as as you might otherwise expect. Um, and then we also are looking at customers that are willing to adopt quickly. Um, and that's important because we could solve, um, for example, crude oil distillation. And we could be working on that. And we could we could solve that from a technical perspective. But 
is a petro petrochemical refinery going to replace or offset or augment the first step in their process tomorrow? Probably not. And so we have to also think about how much data is 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 required for the customer to adopt this technology. What is the 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 scale and scope of that? Does this need to be operating commercially for how long? And what are those metrics? Those metrics exist for a reason. They exist for their two number one and number two priorities: safety and reliability. And so we've got to be able to match. We've got to be able to deliver that burden of proof that we can do what we're saying we can do. And so we want to start with, you know, some of those same customers, but some of the the systems that maybe are smaller or are less reliable than their than their core core processes, and then ultimately build that that capability in the company and scale to those larger ones. So we think about not only the uh, market and climate impact, but also how do we go to market? How do we drive value to our investors on what time scale? We can't s- sit around. Nobody can. No large or small company can cannot see revenue for a very long time. Right. And so how does the, those calculations lead you to particular industrial applications beyond pulp and paper? Yeah, they certainly do. There's a, a few I'm, I'm pretty excited about right now. Acid processing is one of them. So whereas the pulp and paper market is a very caustic, so think bleach is a caustic material. It's as if we're working with concentrated bleach, right? Very caustic, but acidic is the other end of the pH spectrum. And so there's some um, symmetry in, in how the chemistry works there. So we're really excited about some acid processing applications. Really excited about a couple of food-based applications. Um, sugar concentration is done entirely with evaporators today and uh, could be a really great place for very few tweaks of technology, just kind of a copy and paste. But then there are other um, sectors like, for example, um, separating different organics from each other that would require more fundamental tweaks of technology but still leverage the same platform. And so then we're also weighing the development timeline, which is kind of the other axis of decision making. So a lot of a lot of things go into this decision of where you're heading next. And uh, we also need to be super focused. I mean, we're we're launching our first project. We've got to deliver. We've got to f- stay focused on the customer customers we have today and the customers that we're going to have tomorrow. And um, we're a small team, and so we can we can only do so much. And the cardinal rule of startups is to not try to do everything and to focus really carefully on your first beachhead market. Um, and and for us, our, our beachhead is a really, really big market. And so we're excited to tackle that simultaneously. I want to take us in a different direction. One of the last questions I tend to ask folks is for advice for others thinking about getting into uh, the business and climate space. So what advice do you have for folks when they ask you Uh, Where are the opportunities? How can I find out about working in the climate space? My number one piece of advice is to work with people you're excited about working with. Everything, uh, Everything in this sector is hard. Everything in this sector is new. Everything in this sector is exciting, at least in my opinion. But if you're working with people that you're learning with, you're working with people who excite you and you believe in, then all of the noise will will 
ultimately work out. And so, so at least in my opinion. So I think that um, a lot of folks ask me, you know, do I need to be a technical person? Do I need to be a business person? I think the answer is you can be everything and work in the climate sector. We need really smart people who are really motivated in all parts of the ecosystem. And um, I believe it's a very, very exciting place to be in early stage startups. Do you have to move to places like San Francisco or Boston with this post-COVID world with so many people working remotely? Can you find opportunities remotely? Can you pursue them remotely? In, in my opinion, absolutely. Um, we are a majority in-person workplace culture, but our entire commercial team right now is, is remote, working remotely. And um, we are, you know, figure, figuring out how to do that best, you know, in full disclosure. But also the companies that are doing exciting climate things exist throughout the country. And I get very fired up and very excited when I hear about friends or colleagues or, or people I've worked with in the past who are saying, you know, I'm really thinking about getting into climate and I'm thinking about solar panels on our roof or, or things like that. And I'm like, yes, that's wonderful. And can you can you give your 40 plus hours a week? Because wherever you are, I bet there's something cool going on. Well, it's been very inspiring to talk to you. Thank you so much for the conversation and best wishes with your company. Thank you. Uh, I've really enjoyed the conversation, and thank you for having me. That was my conversation with Shreya Davi, CEO of Via Separations. Shreya's insights into transforming industrial processes through advanced technology offers a glimpse into the kind of innovative thinking required to reduce the climate impact of the industrial sector. You've been listening to Climate Rising. To hear more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Share with your friends and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on this episode. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Ali Thorne is our producer and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.